This is an ABC podcast. The spooky sounds of the supernatural on screen. From the classic Japanese anime series Kitaro, which helped launch ghosts and monsters back into the mainstream of popular culture. Hello, I'm Meredith Lake. Welcome to Soul Search on RN. And I wonder what visual culture tells us about our perceptions of the unseen. Do you find monsters, ghouls and ghosts entertaining? Or is a churchy intrigue like the two popes more your thing? We are moving in directions I can no longer condone. I've struggled to do what must be done, but I've lost. Hopes can't resign. If you do this, you will damage the papacy forever. I can no longer sit on the chair of St. Peter. You're mistaken. You are friends. I cannot play this role anymore. Today on Soul Search, we'll take a look at some recent depictions of priests on screen and at the role film might play in reflecting or perhaps challenging popular attitudes to Catholicism. First, though, we're reaching back into the supernatural history of Japanese art. Before anime, before manga, before any kind of comic, all kinds of weird and wonderful creatures haunted the Silk Scrolls of the 17th century. To learn more, come with me to the Art Gallery in Sydney. I'm Melanie Eastburn. I'm Senior Curator of Asian Art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and Curator of Japan Supernatural. Well, thank you so much for having me here at the gallery today, Melanie. This is an extraordinary exhibition that you've put together. I'd like to ask just first up, though, why explore the supernatural as your blockbuster exhibition for this summer season? The supernatural in Japanese art is just one of those things that just keeps coming up and up. And you're looking at pictures of pleasure districts, looking at pictures of courtesans, landscapes, but always there's some element of the supernatural in there. And I wanted to look at why that was there and how it was that it appears to have a long continuity, centuries long continuity from times that people wouldn't remember through to the 18th century where it became very popular and then into things like Studio Ghibli and Pokemon that we're familiar with in everyday lives, but in fact have a close connection to Japanese history. I think some people, when they imagine Japan, they might think of a highly technological, perhaps sensible, urban, in some senses traditional society, but the things we're about to see disrupt a lot of that. What kind of Japan are we about to meet? Well, I think it's the Japan that is always there but you can't necessarily see it. So what these artists in the exhibition have done is bring to life and make visible the invisible worlds of our imaginations, the things that we invent to make sense of things we can't otherwise understand, like strange sounds in the night or unusual feelings, the sense that someone's behind you but then you turn they're not, and it's making those into something physical. There's a couple of key terms we might need to use terms for monsters and for ghosts. Could you just introduce those for us? 
Yeah, of course. So the two main terms that are used throughout uh, looking at supernatural in Japanese art are yurei, and yurei are the ghosts, who often refer to people who had been living. And then there are the yokai, and the yokai is a really broad term for almost anything strange. So monsters, witches, uh, humans who change shape, shape-shifting animals, but also things that have never existed in reality or in our known reality, but help us to explain those strange phenomena. I was reading that yokai comes from two words actually, meaning bewitching for, for your, and then kai meaning mysterious or wonderful, um, some kind of what could be suspicious, a kind of apparition. And so we're getting a sense of all kinds of fantastic beasts. Why don't we have a look then at one of the headline works in this exhibition, Melanie? Uh, let's walk over and you can tell us about what is unrolling in this incredibly long glass case before us. What, what's, this, what's this work? So this is a five metre long hand scroll by an artist called Toriyama Sekien. And so it would have been read from uh, right to left and unrolled bit by bit and the story told as people were looking at it. So we have it displayed so you can see the whole thing at one go. But in the past it would have been part of a storytelling tradition and just showing a little bit at a time. And so because it's been a hand scroll and been rolled up for many years, it was made in the 1770s, it's in incredible conditions. It's uh, pigments on silk, but the colours are really vibrant. And what it is, is a night parade of a hundred demons. And what that is, is various yokai. So for example, from dancing cats, cats who dance on their hind legs when they reach a certain age, otters who change into beautiful women to seduce people and trick them, but also the physical manifestation of tree spirits. So all kinds of creatures out and about for their night parade. And these are all moments in the evening. And then as the sun comes up, they disappear into the day. And Toriyama Sekien made this painting of the yokai. It's the only one he ever made that we're aware of. It's from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. But he's very famous for having made a four-volume encyclopedia of yokai that was published really widely uh, in the 1770s and 80s and was extremely popular, was published over and over and over again. And the first three volumes were known yokai. So known characters like the Rokorokobi, the long-necked woman whose neck extends at night and she eats insects and the chi of men. But then by the fourth volume, he'd run out of known yokai, so he made up new ones and then they became part of the yokai tradition as well. Melanie, when you say known yokai, can you tell me a bit more about the tradition of belief or imagination that these hundred demons and their night parade fits into? What, what was the world that someone who originally viewed this uh, was part of in that imaginative sense? Well, it was a world of change. It was, around, it was from the time that Edo, so now Tokyo, became the capital of Japan and it became, went from being a small village to a really bustling city. It was one of the biggest cities in the world. And it was changing all the time. It had become quite a wealthy city. So people were living in this new world and a new place, but it was also a time where technology was changing. So affordable, easily printed books 
and prints were also available and they were popular culture and widely distributed, often described as costing about the price of a bowl of noodles. Mm -hmm. And so very accessible. And what had happened was people had had in their minds these images of what the yokai might be, but from regional perspectives or family tradition. And then with publication meant that there was a form that could be seen of what, what that creature, say a kappa, so a water-dwelling creature, might look like. And that started to form the basis of then what people expected it to look like. And that began the visual tradition that we're familiar with today. The whole impulse to cataloguing these creatures and distilling out of regional stories a kind of encyclopedia of yorkai is fascinating. This is about the same time where in Britain uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica is being established. Also in China you have neo-Confucian ideas of kind of ordering knowledge and kind of setting up authoritative forms of it. Mm. Is this a kind of formalising of a really long and diverse folk tradition or is it the birth of something new? I think it's both. And you're absolutely right, it's the same time as Diderot's encyclopedia, all of these things, but they don't have an actual crossover. It's just this interesting moment in the world where people are collecting and publishing information. So these books that you were talking about, there's one here in the case, mm. it's, it's black and white. Are these woodblock prints? What are they? Yeah, these are woodblock prints on mostly mulberry paper and they're just in black ink. The paintings are coloured, but the books, are, in this case, are just black and white. There are some coloured ones later. And they have on each page a different yokai and a little description of them and putting them in the context of an environment. So w whether it's an internal house where they might live or whether they live in the forest, it's all catalogued here and made into a, almost a codified form of characters who then can appear in any context these yokai creatures can you clarify for me what their i guess their metaphysical status is because there's there's hundreds of them they've got all kinds of forms as you were saying are these part of the system of ancestor worship or where do these fit into i guess the more what you might call the religious life of the people uh, who lived uh, at this time so the yokai fit into the sort of social life of Japan in the Edo period. And they do relate to kami and the nature worship of Shinto, but they're a little bit different because these are the unworshipped spirits. These are beings for entertainment, storytelling, for warning people not to go in the water, used f for all those kinds of things that we need in our lives to keep us safe or to explain strange phenomena, but they're not worshipped but they were assumed to be real in some sense. There was in the distant past no sense that they weren't part of the same world that we are. They were the things that we couldn't see necessarily, but they lived with us, they existed with us, and it wasn't until later that they became considered a sort of strange invention or something amusing rather than just something else that shared our life and I guess you have to remember also this was a time there wasn't any electricity or wasn't any of the, that kind of thing so at night it was really dark and strange noises were probably really strange and lots of things were lit by candlelight which produced shadows which could be disturbing so there were very many reasons why there was no sense that they weren't part of the world that we, we live in.
Well, it raises the question then of modernity and the rise of modernity and whether that involved a disenchantment. Let's have a look through the rest of the exhibition because we might find some clues to that there. You're listening to Soul Search, broadcast and podcast, with me, Meredith Lake. Today, taking a walk around the Art Gallery of New South Wales with curator Melanie Eastburn. She's put together a show called Japan Supernatural, an exploration of the fantastic, the ghostly and the monstrous in Japanese visual culture, from the 1700s right up to today. In the next room here, there's another astonishing scroll. What are we looking at now, Melanie? So this is almost 100 years after the Sekien one. It's made in about 1860 by an artist called Hiroharu Itaya. And it's a type of hand scroll that, again, was unrolled and talked about. And it's often described as the first animation in Japanese art because of the way they're very dynamic characters. But by this time, the Night Parade of 100 Demons has moved to a new sort of category, which are everyday objects that have gained a spirit by living up to 100 years. I can see one actually that looks like some kind of umbrella, uh, a musical instrument there, some symbols that have been, you're right, animated is the right word, isn't it? They look very lively. They've got almost cartoonish faces. That's probably an anachronism, but I can see how it's almost leaping out of the scroll. Yeah, so as part of the show, we actually had them animated, but they're quite, they gave the clues themselves in their movement and what kind of dynamism would be needed for their movements or their speed because it is a very lively work of art. So it's like this parade is moving, it's moving quite fast, it's really musical, you can almost hear the sound of cymbals and shouting, um, but there's... Uh, household objects that have come to life and so to be discarded they have to be discarded kindly and thanked because they may come back and be a night parade of a hundred demons although in this context it's not scary it's amusing. Lots of the works in this room date from the 19th century which is a period which certainly in European history is associated with industrialization and rapid industrial modernity as a secularising force in many ways, a disenchanting force. But there are all kinds of creatures parading across these artworks. Is that because the supernatural is quarantined into the visual arts out of the public sphere, or is this a way of processing a changing public, a changing polity? Well, these particular works are by Kawanabe Kyosai, and he had a lot of interaction with um, international visitors to Japan. So at the Towards the end of the 19th century, Japan, which had been deliberately isolated from the rest of the world for a couple of hundred years, was forced to open up to international influence and trade. And Japan didn't really necessarily want to do that initially, but then once it happened, there was a sense of wanting to be a very international, modern, scientific nation and embarrassment about superstitious beliefs and the, the creatures, the yokai. And so they're essentially banned from kabuki performances and works of art were often banned, um, prints if they featured supernatural stories. 
it was really kind of discarded fairly intensely. But then some artists used that for political purposes. So Kyosai made a, a classroom where the monsters are learning. There's like a blackboard with images and a monster is teaching the other monsters how to be monsters. But they're wearing kind of European clothing and there's another section in that where the kappa, who are these water-dwelling frog-like creatures, are learning the words in Romanized letters for their favorite things, which are the river and cucumbers. And it's meant to be playful and it, yet at the same time political. How are we meant to understand this? Is it a critique primarily or is it a joke? It's a bit of both. So it's a critique. It's a comment on really we're being taught how to live uh, in a new way. But at the same time, there is humour. And Kyosai was not totally against international collaboration. He took on students who were from other places. For instance, the architect Josiah Kondo became a painting student of Kyosai. So it wasn't that he didn't have those uh, broader relationships or wasn't interested in the rest of the world, but he was critical of um, leadership in Japan at that time. How much of this is nostalgia for what you might call a pre-modern Japan? And how much is this an attempt to drag those traditions into the present? Oh, I think for Kyoso this just was his contemporary reality. He wasn't really, he was trained in various schools, but he wasn't really following traditions. He very much did his own thing, and these were the images he wanted to create. But that said, artists tended to work largely on commission and for prints on subscription. So they were often, they were published by known publishers and artists designed them. They didn't print them themselves usually. And so there would have been a market for these, for Kyosai to be creating them. It's interesting to think about the supernatural as something mediated through very specific economic relationships to a community in transition. It's not just an attempt to depict the world as he sees it. No, it's not terribly romantic. (laughs) These days, the Japanese fantastic has become a major cultural export. Think of movies like Spirited Away, the whole Pokemon phenomenon, all that supernatural anime. But for a while there, in the Meiji period, depictions of ghosts and monsters had all but dissipated. So how did this resurgence of the supernatural actually happen? In the 1950s and 60s, creatives like manga artist Shigeru Mizuki began recovering stories of yokai and incorporating them into comics and into now classic TV animations like Kitaro, whose 1968 theme music we're hearing at the moment. Mizuki's renovation of the supernatural had a huge influence, including, says Melanie Eastburn, on Japanese artists working today. Mizuki informed particularly artists like Takashi Murakami, who grew up reading those comics, thinking about those characters. And when we approached him to make a work for us, so he's made a new painting for us, which is a huge painting, three metres tall and 10 metres long, of giant, 
Yorkite cat in the middle. But we asked him if he would be interested to create something for the show and for the gallery. And he said, oh, I haven't really done Yorkite work before, although many strange creatures turn up in his work. And so then he started talking more and more about Mizuki and the influence as a child. And then from there, going back into the ukiyo-e, the older Edo period prints, with these sort of dramatic images of yokai and samurai in battle, particularly images of characters like the um, earth spider and giant salamanders, and then, of course, these giant cats. So those stories came back into circulation, but they did have a strong break. Other artists, like Fuyoko Matsui, really look more to the Buddhist traditions of painting, and she paints in a Nihonga style, so a more traditional Japanese style of painting, although she's a contemporary artist. And one of the series of works we've got in this show from her is a series of images basically of a woman's body decomposing. And it goes back to an early Buddhist tradition of paintings of the decomposing body, but she uses it in a very contemporary way as a critique of, or a way of analysing her life as a woman in contemporary Japan. Why do you think this visual vocabulary is still so useful, I guess, to a society like early 21st century Japan or indeed Australia? I mean, previous artists have invented characters of their own. Why rehabilitate the yokai of traditional art and and, and give them a new lease of life. What's, what's so appealing about that kind of fantastic figure that, that we can't leave, leave it alone? Look, it's hard to know when every artist will have their own ways and reasons behind it, but each of these characters does have such a great visual presence and such a great backstory. So there are reasons why you might want to incorporate them into your work. People like Fukumatsu who don't incorporate specific yokai characters, more of a, a concept of the strange, the unworldly, the things we don't, we can't grasp um, in more of a memento mori, vanitas kind of way. But for particularly Takashi Murakami, I mean, it's a literal sort of celebration of known characters from Japanese history um, and storytelling. I mean, we're saying this, sitting in a room with that huge painting with the cat. <laughs> and oh, oh, they must be three or four metres tall, these, these statues. Yeah, so the, the sculptures are almost, they're almost five metres tall. And they are, there's a, one that has blue skin and one has red skin. And they're giant um, muscular oni demons. And they're taking the form of temple guardians to some degree but they are onis from stories so these monstrous wild creatures who marauded around japan and needed to be sort of subdued and the only person who was ever able to subdue them was momotaro the little peach boy so a baby who was born of a peach he and his friends for instance a talking dog um, and a pheasant went and they were able to subdue the oni so the oni are here being serious and looking like temple guardians but they're actually quite funny elements of folklore and oni can be very scary but they are also comic 
And these particular ones refer to the beginning and the end of everything. So one, the red one has his mouth open and in his mouth are rainbow-coloured teeth and he has golden nasal hair. But his mouth is wide open and he's the ah, the beginning of everything. And then the other has his mouth closed, although his rainbow fangs are still sticking out, and he's the om, the end of everything. Yorkai now have, I mean, you can buy figurines, you can read them in, read about them in comics, you see them on screen, like, say, sushi or ninja, they've become almost a a Japanese-branded commodity consumed Mm. around the world. Is this just a cultural product for global capitalism to some extent, or... Or is there something about making space for the monstrous, even the comically monstrous, in, you know, a a 21st century world? I think there's something that humans like about the unknown, the strange, the amusing, the scary. Those things, we never quite let them go. It doesn't matter how sort of serious or constrained our lives might be or how disciplined. There's a little sense of the imagination and it's... It's just there. It's the things we just kind of need for that extra richness in our lives. And not me, obviously, it's not everybody, but I feel like we can't even not have those things. They're just somehow there. Melanie, it must be a tremendous amount of fun curating works as, as vibrant and as playful as these. I wonder how you first became interested in Asian art. I mean, it's been years to become the senior curator of Asian art here at the Gallery in New South Wales. Where did that begin for you? Well, it happened a lot by chance, but as a child, I grew up in Papua New Guinea and then we moved to Australia when I was about eight. And one of the first books we bought when I got here was a book of Japanese folk stories. I did not think about that in the many years in between that time and this time. But I think it did sort of infiltrate my thinking. Uh, but I've always been interested in the way, the other ways of doing things and in, in cultural communication. And it's just always been there. So when I went to university, it was just chance that um, an Asian art course was offered and I fell in love with it. But like with so many things, it's just chance and I happened to find the thing that I have a passion for. Melanie Eastburn is the Senior Curator of Asian Art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the curator of its summer blockbuster, Japan Supernatural. If you'd like to see some of the works we've discussed, Kyosai's Classroom of Monsters or Sekian's Night Parade of 100 Demons, just head to the Soul Search website for pictures and more information. Or if you can get yourself to Sydney to see the exhibition, you'd better do it quickly. Japan Supernatural is on until Sunday, March the 8th, and you don't want to miss it. Right now on RN, this is Soul Search with me, Meredith Lake. And given that the 1980s version of Astro Boy is probably the only anime that I've actually seen, it's just as well I have a colleague like Rowan Salmond, who can help me think a bit more about the supernatural and even the religious figures that we meet on screen. Hi Rowan, it's great to see you and to distract you at least for a little while from your regular gig producing God Forbid. Oh no, thank you. Happy to be distracted. 
And I believe you did a show not that long ago about Japan and its religious cultures. Yeah, a couple of years ago, we did a program that I've called the Japanese Paradox, which is about Japan is one of the least religious countries in the entire world, but shrine attendance and temple attendance is really, really high. Um, So we spent an hour talking about that. And I guess the supernatural pervades popular culture as well, as Mm. we've just been hearing, as well as associating you with God forbid. I do think of you as ABC Religion's pop culture expert. (laughs) I mean, especially relative to me, who doesn't even own a television. (laughs) Uh, Are you an anime fan? Is this a kind of a genre that you're very familiar with? Uh, Yeah, I do watch a little bit of anime, but I think a lot of my uh, anime taste is now probably considered a bit out of date because my favourites, you know, were released in 2010. Um, (laughs) But a favourite of mine is um, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, which deals with a lot of themes about the origin of truth and, you know, whether science or philosophy is kind of the way to go. It's a really, really good series. More recently, though, Rowan, you've been paying attention, I guess, to another expression of the religious on screen and particularly to the phenomenon of the priest, maybe even the hot priest on screen. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about this interest of yours. Well, it really all starts, of course, with Fleabag season two. um, And there's the very attractive priest uh, character in that series. But then also the young pope and now the new pope, which has just come out on SBS. These deal with very... uh, unusually attractive priests, I would say. I mean, Um, one of them's played by Jude Law. Yes, he plays the Pope, in fact. This has been a bit of a trope. You know, there have been uh, calendars, unofficial calendars of hot priests for sale in Rome. You know, if you're a tourist, you can go there and and buy one of those if that's your thing. Um, But I would say that uh, this depiction of priests is possibly out of step with the way that we think about the Catholic Church itself. And so I was really interested in that question and thought I would uh, talk to some experts on it. Well, tell me about your guests, uh, Father Peter Malone and Father Richard Leonard. Yeah, so Father Richard Leonard is a Jesuit priest and the director of the Australian Catholic Office for Film and Broadcasting. Um, And Father Peter Malone uh, has just written a book called Screen Priests. It is enormous. It is Um, enormous. You're (laughs) waving your copy there and that's got to have hundreds and hundreds of pages. It is. It's basically every depiction of a priest on screen since the year 1900. And he would know because he's the former head of Cygnus, which is the World Catholic Association for Communication. Um, And he's been reviewing films of all kinds for over 50 years. So I asked Father Peter Malone what attracted him to film in the first place. Well, I was attracted to it long before I was a priest, so I suppose that was just part of my life. In fact, I used to uh, organise the programs and screen them at school. And then when I became a member of a religious order... And we're very strict in those days. And the novice master indicated we should never see a film again. Uh, We did have some in our student days. And somehow or other, it all clicked. And I read a book by a Jesuit, in fact, uh, The Image Industries. And it was about themes and meaning of films. And that was about 1959, 60. And that did it. And uh, Richard? I was, uh, I certainly enjoyed the cinema when I was a kid and I grew up in Toowoomba in Queensland and, you know, the cinema was a way to think so much bigger about the world and so it was literally the dream factory. But I didn't take it seriously, I don't think, until it was suggested to me that I might do graduate studies in cinema and that was by our Jesuit boss in Australia at the time. 
so I started to do that. And then, of course, I realised that the cinema is actually a cultural document. It tells us something about ourselves, about our society, indeed about our world. I now see them as a, a window into um, the cultural mores and values of any society, and ours in particular. I'm really interested in the uh, depiction of priests in film. Overall, how are priests generally portrayed in film and TV? I think there's been a dramatic change in that um, over the life of the cinema. I guess, you know, Bing Crosby and Going My Way was like the archetypal priest and on the waterfront, of course, Carl Malden. Um, these were um, heroic people. They were wonderful. They were much loved. They looked after street kids and saved buildings and, you know, and, and were in, involved in union fights and protecting people's rights. And then up till now, uh, pretty well the more recent depictions anyway, would be as abusers, child sexual abusers. So it's reflected back. I think priests were held in a lot of esteem. They were given an enormous amount of power. But in more recent times, because of the despicable criminal dysfunction that has been uncovered about clergy sexual abuse, that's reflected in more modern representations of the cinema. And uh, Peter, what's your impression of priests and the way that they've been reflected in uh, film and TV, particularly recently? Well, I'll start with a story. In 1995, I was asked to write an article about priests on screen for um, the centenary of cinema. So I decided to jump back 50 years, which meant I went back to going my way and some of the examples that Richard mentioned, especially on the waterfront. But... 1995 was the year that the controversial film Priest, written by Jimmy McGovern, came out. And it seemed to me important to make some kind of awareness of what had happened from Bing Crosby being reprimanded by Barry Fitzgerald for jumping over a hedge to the issues of especially the gay assistant priest in the parish in the film Priest. So we've been through an extraordinary amount but I have a chapter um, starting more or less with The Exorcist. And for the last almost 50 years, a lot of the priests, a lot of the priests are involved in connections with satanic rituals, in exorcisms, which by and large, I think 90% of the clergy would never come by. And we have a whole lot of scenes where people come to the local priest for some kind of expertise, and in his library, he's got all these ancient manuscripts with <laughs> curses and which he can interpret at the drop of a hat. And it is so removed from ordinary priestly experience that if it weren't so serious, it sometimes is laughable. Hmm, that's interesting. Since then, I'd partly agree with Richard that the priests have been presented as abusers, but as I look at, say, the representations of clergy in the United States... It's comparatively small representation of abusers. Spotlight, I suppose, was the key film. But I'm surprised that there have been so many uh, positive images of priests, even if they've got involved in controversial parish problems. So it's been an interesting 75 years from Bing Crosby to now. What are some examples of the positive portrayals of priests? One that comes to mind is... Um, Calvary, which is an Irish film, and at the same time there was the French film of Gods and Men about the Trappists who were killed in Algeria. They've stood out for me as quite significant in recent times. But, say, going back to uh, the beginning of the century, 
it's very interesting that there was a film called Keeping the Faith, directed by Edward Norton, in which he portrays a priest and he's a great friend of a rabbi played by Ben Stiller. And so they're looking at the vocations of each and the celibacy and marriage issue came up. Rabbi has to be married, priest not married. And there's a wonderful scene where the parish priest, played by the director Milos Foreman, has a discussion with the young man about falling in love but keeping faithful to vocation. And I thought, that's interesting, the 21st century started with that kind of image from an American film. Mm. And uh, Father Richard, are you ever able to watch a show or a movie depicting a priest and sort of hold it at arm's length and sort of appreciate it for what it is? Or are you always comparing that character against your own experience? I don't know a lawyer who doesn't see a courtroom drama and think of, you know, that's rubbish or that's right or they captured that well. And I assume it's true of every profession. When you see yourself on the screen, small or large, in my case, I, I, there are some representations that even though it isn't my experience, like the Bing Crosby going my way and Bells of St Mary's, I know my uncle was a priest and I think he would have been inspired by Bing Crosby. You know, that would have been considered to be somebody who was doing the right thing for the right reasons and he would have related to that and I would have at least understood that image of priesthood. The more recent ones, uh, Mass Appeal, Spotlight, Calvary, um, Keeping the Faith. Yeah, there are parts of all of those stories that I could uh, find compelling. And if not in my own experience of being a priest, certainly in the stories I've heard and listening to other priests over the years. I want to turn to a couple of films and TV shows that have come out in the last few years. Um, Fleabag season two has was a bit of a hit in 2019. Have you seen Fleabag season two? Richard? I have, yes, I've seen it. Yes. I enjoyed it very much. What did you like about it? Well, her internal turmoil, which is so beautifully externalised and uh, and the way she, you know, has to keep talking through these things and she's so unlucky in love and there are so many other dramas in her family and her life and her workplace. And I found it actually to be a really um, meditative piece on some of the angst that I see in young people, as I say, in their 20s and 30s these days. What's my role in life? What's my meaning? What's my purpose? What's any of this mean? And I think that um, they did it extremely well. Plus, she was just funny. And what did you think about the portrayal of the priest character? I thought that was okay, I've got to say. At least he was realistic. And, uh, you know, there were, again, as Peter just said about um, moments of a script where they get a priest to say something, sometimes I just, I, I'd never, ever hear a priest say that. Now, I can't say a priest would never say that, but I've never heard one. I'd never think of saying something or the way they say it, so rude, so direct. And he can be pretty dismissive in Fleabag and also a rather terse with her, whereas I think if faced with the rather enormity of some of the issues that she's bringing to him and talking to him about, the response would have been much more pastoral, much more generous. At least I would hope that's true of the vast majority of priests. But it worked well within the drama. But it, Clint Eastwood in um, the film where the... What was the name of that, Peter? Um, Grand Torino. Grand Torino. You know, I was totally wanted to rewrite that uh, every single scene with that priest because he was young, he was pompous, he was awful. And even after this guy is, becomes a widower, he says something terrible to him in the church. And I just don't imagine a priest being that callous, that rude. What does that betrayal of a priest tell us about 
maybe how priests are imagined in the society at large? Yeah, I think people's actual encounter with priests these days is very limited. They say they go to church at Easter and Christmas and for hatchings, matchings and dispatchings. So they go for baptisms, weddings and funerals. And and it is true that some priests in the Catholic Church, sadly, aren't as welcoming and generous and hospitable as I think we should be because Jesus was. And so, you know, oh, you're running late, they're upset about that, or the bride's too late, or, you know, the eulogy went too long, or whatever, and they can, their irritation can be seen. And and that, that could be publicly demonstrated, but privately he might be a much more sensitive and appropriate person. Most of the clergy I've ever met are, are quite sensitive people, and they want to respond humanly and appropriately. Peter, the priest in Fleabag is quite young, he's charismatic, as I said, he's sexualized um, in what could be interpreted as a positive way. That's actually sort of the direct opposite of the uh, reputation that the Catholic Church itself has at the moment. Why do you think that this particular portrayal of a priest in this way has taken off? My only information about the priest in Fleabag comes via YouTube clips. I would think that we have to look at uh, the priest as a sexual being committed in celibacy, especially those who belong to religious orders. Options, I think, for diocesan clergy because it's uh, a church law and um, a lot of discussion about it these days and the possibility uh, for married priests. So I think those kinds of questions need to be raised. I would think that uh, any film that takes this on, it does arouse audience attention because it's so talked about and, as Richard has mentioned, the background of the abuse cases and what that's meant about the public's perception of of clerical celibacy and behaviour and especially the abuses. So I'd say, yes, it's a definite challenge these days. Film and theology experts Peter Malone and Richard Leonard, speaking with RN's Rowan Salmond about how Catholic priests are being depicted in film and on TV. I'm Meredith Lake, and we're talking religion and popular culture on Soul Search this week. Is that far? Yes, but it's okay because it had a stroke. Oh, Oh, lovely. (laughs) (laughs) I can't go to hell for that, can I, Father? (laughs) No, not as long as you confess. Oh, God, he's their priest. Then you have nothing to worry about. They're cool, sweary priests. (laughs) Love the Catholics. You can get away with anything. Now, depicting faith leaders on film obviously raises all kinds of issues. And these come to the fore in shows like Fleabag, which we just heard, and in shows like The Young Pope, starring Jude Law, or perhaps The Two Popes, which is now on Netflix. I think The Two Popes is a a really important film, but that film suffers from what a lot of films suffer from, including 1917 and a few other brilliant ones around at the moment. Based on true events is a very euphemistic term, and so it's so broad. But in this film, we get different takes on what it is to be a Christian in the world right now, what it is to be a Catholic, what it is to be a guardian of the tradition, one who thinks it's about something static to be maintained and feeling the burden of that and the other thinking the tradition breeds and has to be influenced by its local context. And in that way, I think they captured 
tensions, not just in the Catholic Church, primarily so obviously, but also in the whole Christian Church and maybe beyond about the polarisation of dialogue, of um, education, of politics, of healthcare, of social services. You find the same polarisation in almost every sphere of life at the moment. It sounds like watching that film for you was kind of a theological, at least it, it stimulated your thinking theologically or spiritually. Was that the case? Yes, I, I did find it a very moving piece. I didn't like the way they portrayed Pope Benedict, I'd have to say. he. I thought it was rather stereotypically German. Um, he was hard and harsh and direct, and and when it suited him, he was aloof. And now, I, I, everybody who I know, and I've met people who have worked with him and know him, say he's not like that. Um, now, he came over as a rather more severe man publicly, but in private, and these were private conversations. In fact, people have always marked on how gentle and how um, funny, like he's got a warm sense of humour. Um, he loves playing the piano and he loves cats and he likes a glass of wine and he likes, uh, you know, it, it just came over. I thought it was a bit of a stereotype and it worked in the film because they wanted to set, the, you know, the rather passionate tango dancing uh, Brogolio from Argentina versus, you know, the Germanic scholar from um, Munich. And uh, I, so I know why, I think I know why they did it, um, but I didn't find it all that helpful. Peter, what do you think? I actually was thinking of Benedict in his career, especially as head of the doctrine of the faith and some of the severity of the judgments that he made and the consequences for various people. And I thought that that aspect of him was incorporated with the personal warmth so I was quite satisfied that you had the double aspect. In fact, I thought the film made Benedict question how he was severe in the past and whether he should have been and a kind of admiring of Francis for his uh, outgoing pastoral approach. There's a sense in which The Two Popes is a quite theatrical film uh, in that sort of it's a two-hander more or less and um, it uses a lot of tropes from theatre, I think, and in a similar way, I think uh, the young Pope and the, the new Pope highly stylized, sort of leaning quite heavily on aesthetics rather than perhaps uh, like authentic Catholic theology is, is my take. What, what do you think about the young Pope, uh, Peter? I'm not sure that authentic Catholic theology was a preoccupation of Paolo Sorrentino when he was writing or directing it. I think he was off, as he was in... Uh, the Great Beauty, which also had uh, cardinals and clerics and a strange missionary nun. And the word that came up uh, with The Great Beauty was uh, Fellini-esque, that he was revisiting a lot of the themes of Federico Fellini. Don't know whether you thought that, Richard. <laughs> I really didn't like the young Pope. I just thought he was the most damaged narcissist I'd ever had the misfortune to spend six and a half hours with or seven hours with. <laughs> and I wondered why anybody wanted to follow him anywhere. Also, Peter's absolutely right to link, I think, the great beauty and, and the uh, new pope, the young pope, because it was about corruption. Every time he's come near any subject, he's looking at corruption and frauds. And this time he turns his gaze sharply on the Catholic Church. And in that regard, in fact, it had something to offer that every organisation, including our own Catholic community, tragically have been betrayed by people who are corrupt and people who don't practice and live what Jesus asks us to do. I think, therefore, it's a very 
important document. It's just it wasn't a he wasn't a character whom I had much sympathy for, empathy for. The internal contradictions in the narrative for me just became too much for me to care. So you didn't even want to follow him as a viewer let alone as a, you know, imagining following him as a priest. Well, I think if he was actually the Pope, I would, uh, yeah, it, it would take a great act of faith, hope and love to stay in the church. I can, <laughs> that's, I can certainly say that's true. Well, in uh, sharp contrast to the young Pope or the new Pope is broken also by um, Jimmy McGovern. Now, I know that you are a fan of this one, Richard. I'm a big fan yeah. of Broken. Uh, and it was Peter's book actually on uh, priests, um, uh, Screen Priests by Peter Malone, and it is an absolutely encyclopedia. It is an encyclopedia on every portrayal of priests there. Uh, it's fabulous. And it was only there that I found out about Broken in reading it. And uh, so I went off and found it, a 2017 BBC series set in the north of England. And uh, it's about uh, Sean Bean and who was, of course, uh, in Game of Thrones. What was his name, character's name? Ned Stark. Uh, Ned Stark. He, but he's in here and his priest. And we get a broken person being ministered to by a broken priest. And I thought it was played with an incredible sensitivity because he has um, an, a, a child abuse background. There's a sexual molestation of his own Catholic school days. Then he's got a very, very complex relationship with his dying mother. And he doesn't know whether he wants to stay a priest. He's lost his enthusiasm. He's lost his hope. And he's lost his ability to see whether he, in fact, is helping in any way, shape or form. And then he's got these wonderful people, some of his parishioners, um, who are going through real life crises. So I, I thought it was one of the best of the contemporary portrayals of a priest I've seen because he's not perfect in any way, shape or form. He's wrestling with his own demons but he's also trying to do what he can for his local parish community in the real world and real time about people's lives that are really messy. Are there themes uh, that are central to what it means to be a priest that perhaps this catches that other texts don't? Well, it certainly uh, is a very interesting take on, which is a bit controversial and current at the moment, the seal of confession in Broken. One of the episodes is about a woman who comes to tell the priest in confession that she's going to commit suicide. Well, strictly she hasn't committed a sin. Um, like moral theologians would have a field day on this stuff because she hasn't actually confessed a sin. She's confessed an intention to sin. Uh, and therefore, what are his obligations then to the seal? Now, I know it's all very current at the moment because people think, oh, the seal of confession and we're all hearing pedophile confessions and we're all keeping it to ourselves. And I've been a priest 26 years. I've never heard a pedophile confession. And to be perfectly frank, I'm not sure I want to. Um, but it doesn't happen in the public's imagination. Like they think this is happening all the time. But does pick up that sacramental bond. He feels burdened by the confidence he must keep um, about not telling anybody that she is going to take her own life. So he feels the burden of that. Um, but I do actually think there's some theological discussion that would be very fruitful around that, actually. Peter, are there stories that deal with uh, many of these themes uh, which might be considered Christian themes or Catholic themes uh, that stand out to you, but which don't feature a priest character? Yes, I'd have to do some thinking to uh, get some examples. But in our international organisation, we actually are at many festivals around the world. Uh, many of our Catholic juries or ecumenical juries and sometimes with Muslims, interfaith juries. And what we are basing our awards on 
basic human values. And I think of all the awards that have been made by our organisations, the country that has received the most awards would be Iran. But by and large, the presentation of human values in individuals, in married life, in families, in struggles, uh, yes, there are some wonderful films that, um, in a sense, are homilies in themselves. Now, I don't know whether that answers the question, but at least uh, it's the thought that comes to me that, yes, there are some wonderful films and uh, they don't necessarily have priests. Basic human values, which would, we would say are in line with gospel values. Well, Father Peter Malone, thank you for uh, joining me on the program. Thank you, Rowan. And uh, Father Richard Leonard, thank you. Rowan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Father Richard Leonard directs the Australian Catholic Office for Film and Broadcasting. He's also a regular jury member at film festivals around the world, including Cannes, Venice, Berlin and Hong Kong. Father Peter Malone is a former president of the International Catholic Organisation for Cinema. A seasoned critic, he's the author of several books on film and theology, most recently, Screen Priests. Richard and Peter were in conversation there with RN's Rowan Salmond. And if you are a creative type, making films dealing with questions of faith and meaning, then head to the Soul Search website for details of the Spiritus Short Film Prize. It's an initiative of the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture at Charles Sturt University. Entries are open now, so check our webpage for the details. Next time on the program, we're marking International Women's Day with Lisa Jackson Pulver, the first female and first Indigenous president of an Orthodox synagogue in Australia, and Lieutenant Kamala Sharma Wing, one of the first Hindu women to serve in the Australian Navy. Two incredible women, so I hope you can join me then. Today's producer was Mariam Shahab, with assistance from Hong Jiang and Nadia Elgoli. The sound engineer was Hamish Camilleri. I'm Meredith Lake. Thanks for your company on your home of ideas, RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.